So in, in case we've not had a chance to meet, my name is Todd Weedman. Uh, I'm a priest in residence here at Grace Anglican Church. So this is our second week looking through the uh, letter from Jude. I'm going to give you just a brief overview of what we had covered last week, just in case anybody missed it or fell asleep. I totally get it. And then we'll jump into today's lesson. So um, going back just to first things here, I had mentioned last week that I'm a believer not just in teaching you what Scripture says, but teaching you how to go to Scripture to see what Scripture says all on your own. Um, So I want to be really transparent as I'm teaching through Jude. What is my methodology? How do I go to Jude and find out what Jude has to say to us? So I'm very indebted to Scott Duvall and Danny Hayes. These guys were professors of mine in undergrad, um, and they put together a really phenomenal textbook on biblical interpretation, was intended uh, for use in teaching freshmen in college uh, how to go to God's Word and see what he has to say to us. So um, this is the, the method that I learned to use in undergrad, and it's stuck with me all of these years. So... From their textbook, Grasping God's Word, they have a five-step process for how to go to Scripture to see what God has to say to us today. So that first step is grasping the text in their town. And you can see here on this little image that I'm projecting over on the far left, we've got a village that looks like a, a village in the time of the Bible. So the question that we're asking here is, what did the text mean to the biblical audience? Right? And in this step, we're supposed to make observations. We want to identify certain things, like who was the author? Who was the intended audience? We want to study the historical and literary context of the text that we're looking at. We want to understand what was the literary genre. Right? There are several genres in Scripture. We have poetry, exalted prose, historical narrative, epistolary. Right? And so we have to come to these letters reading them in the way that they were intended to be read. We don't read poetry the same way that we read historical narrative. So it's, under, it's important to understand that. So uh, along with these observations, we're doing word studies. So and after we've spent that time working the text, really understanding what it had to say to the original audience, what it meant to them, We want to synthesize, right? What was the meaning for the original audience in one or two sentences? Okay, that was step one. Step two, we're going to measure the width of the river to cross. And you see here on this image, we've got a little river between this biblical time village and a a modern contemporary town in our world today. So when we're asking in this step, what are the differences between the biblical audience and us? We want to identify differences between them and us in terms of culture, language, geography, situation, as well as time and place in redemptive history. What were the differences? Okay, and that takes us to step three, which is crossing the principalizing bridge. Okay, in light of the differences between them and us, we're going to ask what is the theological principle in this text? So we want to speculate the theological principle or principles in the text as intended for the original audience that can transcend the differences between them and us today. So in a few points about that, as we're putting together that principle, five things that I think are really important for us to keep in mind. First, the principle should be reflected in the text, right? This is what we call exegesis, right? Exegesis means that we're pulling meaning out of 
the biblical text. Not eisegesis, right, which sometimes happens in Christian circles, where we've got a meaning out here and we're going to read it into the text no matter what, even if it's not there. So second, that principle should be timeless and not tied to a specific situation. So we talked about this, for example, if we're looking in Leviticus. We've got all of these biblical laws that were written in a very specific context. Frequently, this is what we call casuistic law or case study law. Um, The biblical author in Leviticus specifically tells us, when you are in the land, do this. Okay, so when we're doing work in Leviticus, that sometimes can be difficult. Understanding what is the universal theological principle that applies to us today and not just to them when they were in the time of the land covenant. Likewise, this principle shouldn't be culturally bound. Okay, it needs to apply to us as Gentiles. I think most of us would describe ourselves as Gentiles and and not as Jews. Fourth, the principle should correspond to the teaching of the rest of Scripture. Okay, so the example that I gave for this last week, uh, for instance, is the Jehovah's Witnesses. Right? The Jehovah's Witnesses take a look at what Paul teaches in Colossians, where he says that Jesus was the firstborn from all creation. And they conclude that Jesus, therefore, is a created being. Well, that would be fine if we completely ignored everything else that the Bible tells us about Jesus. Right? Jesus himself tells us before everything was created, he was. He was with God at creation. He was not a created being. Right? So the rest of Scripture helps to keep us inside the guardrails to understand what Scripture actually is teaching. And then lastly, the principle should be relevant both to the biblical and to the <coughs> contemporary audience. All right, so step four Consulting the map, we've got a little road sign that shows up here at number four, and it tells us you are here. So the question that we're asking here is, how does our theological principle fit with the rest of the Bible? So again, we're going to consult the rest of Scripture to confirm that our principle is consistent with the whole counsel of God's Word. We're going to see if other portions of Scripture add insight or qualifications to the principle. And as I mentioned last week, it's also very helpful for us to understand how the church historically has made meaning of this text. Okay, a good rule of thumb that one of my seminary professors taught me is if you're the first person to ever read this text and understand it this way, go back and rethink it a little. Okay, we've got 2,000 years of church history, bright minds that have looked at God's word. If nobody else has ever read that and come to that conclusion, you're probably a bit off base. All right, and then our fifth step, grasping the text in our town. So the question we're asking is, how should individual Christians today live out the theological principle that we found in this passage of Scripture? We're going to apply the theological principle that we honed in steps three and four to the specific situation of individual Christians in the church today. All right. So just a quick review of what we did last week when we were together. Um, We asked several questions uh, trying to understand the text in their town. So question one that we asked is, who is the author of this letter from Jude? So we're told in the text, in the salutation, that this is Jude, the brother of James, right, which we concluded was the bishop of ancient Jerusalem, and also the brother of our Lord Jesus. Jesus. 
Um, we understand that Jude came to believe in Jesus as the Messiah sometime after the crucifixion and resurrection, but before Pentecost. Okay, so we have witness in the Gospels that tell us that Jesus' brothers did not believe in him during his preaching ministry. So they were converted sometime after the resurrection. Uh, we understand that Jude actually was married and had children and grandchildren. Right? We had that great, interesting quote from Eusebius talking about the grandchildren of Jude being called to Rome to visit with Emperor Domitian. Domitian was very threatened by the idea that there was some king of Judea who still had family living there. Um, we also understand that Jude was serving as an itinerant preacher among the churches in Galilee. Jude would have been very well educated, quite capable in Greek and the art of rhetoric, very familiar with the Old Testament scriptures. So the second question that we asked last week, who was Jude's intended audience? So we looked at a lot of different possibilities, and our conclusion was that his audience were first-generation Jewish Christians living in Galilee, among the churches that had been planted by the apostles themselves. So Jude tells us in his letters, he wants them to remember the teachings of the apostles who said directly to you, right, these things. So these people actually heard directly from the apostles. The third question that we asked is, what is the genre of Jude? So the genre is very unique for the New Testament. This is a Jewish apocalyptic style. Right? It's a style that was very popular in first century Palestinian Judaism before the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD. Right? This letter is steeped in both Greek speech rhetoric and Jewish pesher and midrash exegetical methods. Right? It's a very interesting combination of those two worlds of thought, Greek thought right? and Old Testament Jewish thought. So Jude is actually a speech act captured in writing, right? It wasn't intended to be a letter that we sit down and read today. It was intended to be a letter that somebody stands before the church on Sunday morning and reads aloud to the whole congregation, right? It was intended to be read aloud to an auditory rather than a literary audience. And that informs the way that it would have been received by the original audience and how we need to read it today. Next question that we asked is, when was the book of Jude or the letter of Jude written? So we looked at a lot of different factors and concluded we're talking about approximately between 48 and 58 AD. Okay, so this was before we start seeing written copies of the Gospels circulating. Right? This is before we start to see most of the Pauline epistles circulating the churches of the Mediterranean. Right? This is one of the very earliest pieces of scripture right? that was pinned down and passed along to the churches. So, And as such, what that helps us to understand is a little more of Jude's audience's context. These people didn't have right, the full canon of scripture that we have today. They were working off of the oral tradition that the apostles had given directly to them when they planted these churches in Galilee. The next question that we ask is, what was Jude's purpose for writing? So Jude indicates early in the letter his long-standing intention 
to communicate with his audience. But this urgency has become even more urgent, right? Because there's a crisis that's arisen in the churches. Jude wishes to urge his audience to contend for the faith once for all handed down. All right, so a couple of quotes that I have for you just uh, from Ben Witherington. If I, uh, I mentioned that briefly last week, let me pull that out here. Um, I am relying very heavily on Ben Witherington. He's a professor at Asbury Seminary here in Kentucky. His Letters and Homilies for Jewish Christians, it's excellent. Uh, if you're interested, it's available on Amazon, pretty reasonably priced. Um, so just want to highlight that. So Ben Witherington, speaking of the genre of Luke, he writes, Jude offers us a sermon in rhetorical form that has only an epistolary opening to indicate that it came to the audience in a written form, though it was likely delivered orally at the point of destination. We must think constantly in terms of the oral majority of the culture and how literate persons like Jude were trying to speak into their situations. And then Richard Bauckham speaking uh, particularly about the faith. Jude references the faith that has been handed down once for all from the apostles. Um, Bauckham in his commentary on Jude says, the central content of the faith was the gospel itself. But it also included traditions about the life of Jesus and instruction on Christian conduct and practice. So in other words, who was Jesus? What did he do? Why did Jesus come? Um, Some teaching about the genealogy of Jesus that helps us to make the connection that Jesus indeed is the promised Messiah from the Old Testament. But then also the ethics of Christ in his ministry and teaching. This is the faith that the apostles handed down. Uh, we also had to spend a little bit of time talking about Jude's source material. So, of course, as I've already mentioned, Jude relied heavily on the apostolic oral tradition, right? The apostles went into these villages in Galilee. They told the people about Jesus. That was a huge source of material for Jude. Second, we have the entire canon of the Old Testament, right? So Jude is frequently going back and referencing Stories from the Old Testament, things like the Exodus, uh, Korah's rebellion, Sodom and Gomorrah. Um, He's relying heavily on that and expecting implicitly that we know, right, what the Old Testament teaches. Okay, third, and this is a little bit more interesting and a bit more complex. Jude seems to be relying very heavily on the book of First Enoch. Okay, so Enoch, also known as 1st Enoch, is an ancient Hebrew apocalyptic religious text. Now, it was ascribed by tradition to Enoch, who was the great-grandfather of Noah, if you remember from early on in Genesis. And it was likely composed pseudepigraphally, right? In other words, it claims to be written by Enoch. It was probably written by somebody else much later, Um, probably composed between the 4th and the 2nd centuries B.C., Now, 1st Enoch contains really unique material about the angelic rebellion, more context behind the flood narrative that we find in Genesis, and a prophetic exposition of the thousand-year reign of the Messiah. Now, this is not part of either the Jewish or Christian canon of Scripture, although, as I mentioned last week, it is included in the canon of the Ethiopian Orthodox Church um, and the Ethiopian Beta Israel community. Those are... Um, Jews living in Ethiopia who claim to be a lost tribe of Israel. 
Um, however, though it was not canonical, it was very popular among Second Temple Palestinian Jews. And that seems to be why Jude is relying so heavily on it. Fourth, we have this, uh, this text known as the Assumption of Moses. So uh, the Assumption of Moses is another Jewish apocryphal work purported to be a testament of the death of Moses. It was likely composed at the end of the first century BC, though today we only have a small fragment of a manuscript of this Assumption of Moses. And it doesn't contain the text that is supposedly cited by Jude in verse 9. Um, we know that it's referenced, though, because Origen, in his 3rd century De Principis, specifically cites the assumption of Moses with reference to the dispute over the body of Moses that happens here in Jude. So we asked a question, what do we do with the fact that Jude is relying so heavily on texts that are not scriptural? How do we make meaning of that? Um, and so... I appealed to the 39 Articles of Religion for this, right? Article 6 tells us, Holy Scripture containeth all things necessary to salvation, so that whatever is not read therein, nor may be proved thereby, is not to be required of any man that it should be believed as an article of faith, or be taught, thought requisite or necessary to salvation. In the name of Holy Scripture, we do understand those canonical books of the Old and New Testament, of whose authority was never any doubt in the, in the church. Okay, so he's talking about the same Bible that we have today, those books. All right, but then in Article 6, it continues. Now, the other books, as Jerome says, the church doth read, for example, of life and instruction of manners, but yet it doth not apply them to establish any doctrine. Okay, so Jerome is saying there are other books out there that have been very useful to the church. For instance, the books that are contained in the Apocrypha. Some of us maybe have the Apocrypha included as an addendum in our copy of Scripture. Right? There are other books that were also very popular and very useful in the early church. Things like First Clement, right, written by the bishop in Rome. Uh, other books, uh, for instance, like the Shepherd of Hermas or the Didache. Right? These are very, very helpful, useful, and even edifying books. So spiritually edifying, they give us context to life in that time. And yet the article tells us we're not to use that to create any doctrine that we would say is requisite for Christians to believe. So I think that's how we should be approaching, right? When Jude is referencing the book of Enoch, when he's referencing the assumption of Moses, um, these are useful. These are interesting stories. They may be true. Um, specifically, the things that Jude is referencing very well may be truth, okay? But we're not going to base a doctrine off of them that all Christians should believe. Does that make sense? Is everybody following with me on that? Well, let's pray, and then we'll begin taking a look at, uh, at Jude, picking up where we left off. Let's pray. Blessed Lord, who caused all holy scriptures to be written for our learning Grant us so to hear them, read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest them, that by patience and comfort of your holy word we may embrace and ever hold fast the blessed hope of everlasting life, which you've given us in our Savior Jesus Christ, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever.
All right, so we took a look at those five questions. Who wrote Jude? Who was the intended audience? What was the genre? What was the date? Right, and what was the context or intention? Now we're going to pick up starting um, at, at verse 3. So Jude writes, Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain people have crept in unnoticed, who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. Now, when we read that certain people have crept in unnoticed, this carries the imagery of stealthy infiltration of certain people into the community of Christ. It's subversive, right? Jude's opponents, they claim to be Christian, but he can clearly see them as something else. And so he appeals to his audience to recognize the difference and not be deceived and to continue to fight for the faith that was once delivered. Some things that we see here. First of all, he says that they were long ago designated for this condemnation. They are ungodly people. They pervert grace into sensuality and they deny Jesus Christ. And we're going to spend the rest of our time today looking at those four points. So first of all, right, Jude tells us they were long ago condemned. So the book of Enoch, also known as First Enoch, uh, well, actually, hang on a second. We'll, we'll come back to that in a moment. Uh, Clement of Alexandria, he was a, a church father who lived in the second and uh, mid-third century, right? So just uh, 150 years later, right? He writes that the false teachers and their condemnation have been recorded in the heavenly books, So the concept of reprobation, that is election unto judgment, appears frequently in the book of 1 Enoch, which is referenced later in Jude's sermon, as we'll see in a few weeks. Jude seems to believe that his opponents' misdeeds and ultimate judgment were prophesied long ago, though he doesn't explicitly cite the source of this prophecy here. We'll see shortly uh, where, where is that. But if you're like me, And I think if you're like the Christians in the churches in Galilee, hearing this sermon being preached, when you hear that they were long ago condemned, your ears probably ought to perk up a bit. Who prophesied this? What was prophesied? What does that mean? I mean, I I know when I was a kid in school, sometimes the, the teachers would come and they would say, somebody did this thing and we know who did it and you better stand up now and take responsibility for it or it's going to be worse for you later. So, you know, I'm thinking, wait, wait, is that me? What, what's going on here? Am I guilty of something? Right? Jude's kind of hooking us right here from the very get-go. He calls his opponents ungodly people, right? So the Greek word here is asibes. So Mounts, uh, in his semantic range for this word, says asabes could be translated as ungodly, wicked, or impious. 
Thayer, in, in his Greek dictionary, says, this is destitute of reverential awe towards God, condemning God, or impious. So Asad base appears 14 times in the Septuagint. So a little bit of background here. Um, when we go to the Old Testament Bible today, Bible translators have translated that from what's known as the Masoretic text. That's the Hebrew uh, translation of the Bible. Now, in the time of Jesus, there was no Masoretic text. There was an oral Hebrew tradition. Uh, we have examples from the Dead Sea Scrolls of uh, written Aramaic Old Testament text. But the Hebrew Masoretic text did not exist for another few hundred years, actually. Right? So the Septuagint was the Greek translation of the Old Testament, which was very, very prevalently used during the time of Jesus and the apostles. Right? So uh, it's often very interesting when you're doing the work of translation, pull out a copy of the Hebrew Masoretic text, pull out a copy of the Septuagint, pull out a copy of the uh, Dead Sea Scrolls, and take a look right, to see where are the similarities, what are the differences. It's really interesting for textual criticism. So, but the Septuagint would have been the Bible that was read by the apostles right, as they were writing Scripture. So it's interesting when they choose certain words right, in Greek to go back to the Old Testament Greek translation and understand, are they making references to something? Okay, so this Asad base appears 14 times in the Septuagint, and every time that it shows up, it's in contrast to righteousness, right? There are those who belong to the household of God who are righteous, and there are those who are wicked and ungodly and, and impious. There are those who do the right thing, and then there's the Asad base, right? So we've got this extreme bifurcation dichotomy. Either you're in or you're out. And Jude is saying that these people are out. They are bad news. So Asabes also appears 10 times in the New Testament. And it's always used to describe those, again, outside of the covenant community. Interestingly enough, this word also appears frequently in the Greek manuscript of 1st Enoch. So it's fair to connect the dots here and conclude that Jude believes his opponents are the fulfillment of Enoch's prophecies. They're the objects of the judgment that's described in that book. Richard Bauckham, in his commentary on Jude, writes, the word, right, asebes, is appropriate to Jude's purpose because it sums up the antinomianism of the false teachers. Now, antinomianism, that's a big word, so let's break it down. Anti, we all know that, right? It's against, right? Nomian comes from the word nomos, which means law. So antinomianism, right, is people who want to completely throw, throw away the moral law of the Old Testament, right? Uh, this was also uh, uh, happening in several of the letters that Paul was writing, when we go to the book of Romans, we see this popping up quite a bit. You know, Romans chapter 6, where people say, I've received the grace of God in Jesus Christ, so I can do whatever I want to do with my body. And Paul says, no, it doesn't work that way. Okay? So this word, Bauckham writes, is appropriate to Jude's purposes because it sums up the antinomianism of the false teachers. Unrighteous behavior stemming from an irreverent rejection of the moral authority of God's commandments. It describes not 
theoretical atheism, but practical godlessness. In our postmodern era where many people are claiming to be Christian while eschewing traditional Christian values and morals left and right, this might seem like a familiar context to us. Asabase describes not theoretical atheism, but practical godlessness. See, this is why I think that Jude is a letter for our day. And I'm so glad to have the opportunity to dive a little bit deeper into it with you um, over the course of the winter, because I I think it speaks volumes uh, to us into what's happening in the church and in the world around us today. So they are godless, but then he tells us that they turn grace into sensuality. Right? So the Greek that we have here, teintu theu emon charita metatithetes eis eselegion. Right? So they're taking the grace of our God, charita, right? Grace. Theu emon, our God. And this word, this metatithentes. Super interesting. This Greek word means to transpose two things. One which is put in the place of the other. So Jude's telling us that they are taking the grace of Jesus Christ, moving it over to the side, and then they're exercising complete freedom in morality. They're saying, I can do whatever I want to do because of grace. They're confusing grace with license. Right? Then we, we have this asel geon. Uh, so Thayer describes asel uh, geon as unbridled lust, excess, licentiousness, lasciviousness, wantonness, outrageousness, shamelessness, and insolence. Okay, so it's translated in our English Bible as sensuality, and I, I actually argue, I don't think that that's the greatest translation of this, of this word. So I've got a few examples here where it's used in the New Testament, and it's used quite a bit. Um, so Paul uses it in Romans chapter 13, verse 13. He says, let us walk properly as in the daytime, Not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy. Again, Paul uses the word in 2 Corinthians 12, 21. He says, I fear that when I come again, my God may be, he may humble me before you. And I may have to mourn over many of those who sinned earlier and have not repented of the impurity sexual immorality, and sensuality that they have practiced. Notice the words that always accompany, right? Asebes, or or, uh, aselgeon, right? We we have sexual immorality, impurity. Now, Paul again in Galatians 5, 19 through 21. Now, the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality. Impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. 
I warn you, as I warned before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Paul again in Ephesians chapter 4, 17 through 20. Now I say this and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do, in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. That's not the way that you learned Christ. Are we starting to connect the dots here? When when he says sensuality, it always seems to accompany this sexual license, this perversion. Peter, in 1 Peter 4.3, writes, For the time that has passed suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do. Living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. Peter again in 2 Peter 2.7. Now, if God rescued righteous Lot, okay, so he's giving us some context here. What, what, what do we think of when we think of righteous Lot? Where, where did he live? Sodom and Gomorrah. We've got a context here. If God rescued righteous Lot from Sodom and Gomorrah, greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked. Okay, well, what was the sensual conduct of the people of Sodom and Gomorrah? All kinds of sexual perversion. For as that righteous man lived among them day after day, he was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard. Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment, and especially those who indulge in the lust of defiling passion and who despise authority. That gives us a, a little clearer picture here, right? We can see from context that aselgeon is not quite so wide-ranging as the English word sensuality, which could be as innocent as enjoying a decadent chocolate cake or the softness of a cashmere sweater against one's skin. Rather, aselgeon skews to the more extreme end of indulgence of all kinds of perverse sexual appetites. And Jude's opponents seem to be taking the good news of salvation by grace as a license to practice such immorality. Jude's concern here was less doctrinal, much more practical. This is a very important point to take in our particular place in history. Jude would have us understand this truth. One may give assent to the creedal faith, right? You can confess wholeheartedly and honestly I believe in God, the Father, Almighty, creator of heaven and earth, and all the way through the creed, right? And yet, completely abandon obedience to God's moral law. And in so doing, abandon the faith that was handed down. I I think this is really timely, right? Uh, I don't know if you're an Anglican nerd like me, I've been following a little bit of what's been happening in the Church of England as the House of Bishops have been gathering together to consider, um, though they deny it, a change in the Church's teaching on human sexuality and sexual relationships. Right? These are folks who happily and confidently confess 
the creeds, right? It's not, it's not like the liberals of 60, 70 years ago who would say, oh, well, we can get rid of the virgin birth. We can get rid of you know, the physical resurrection of Christ. No, they actually do believe that. And yet they're completely casting aside traditional Christian moral ethics. And I think that Jude has something very strong to say about that. They're godless. They turn the grace of God into sensuality. And lastly, they deny Jesus. So the Greek here, kai tu monon, despoten kai kurion, emon yesun christun arnumenoi. So we're going to take a look at this. Arnumenoi, right, means to deny, to disown, to renounce, or to repudiate. Right? This is, this is as old as sin, right? What, what was it that the serpent said to Eve in the garden? Did God really say? Right? So they're denying that Jesus, in fact, has taught. What we know from the Gospels, Jesus indeed has taught. Jesus was explicit in his message. Right? If we go back to the uh, Beatitudes, to the Sermon on the Mount, which, interestingly enough, was referenced in our New Testament Gospel reading today. Jesus says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you until heaven and earth pass away, not a yoda, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them, they will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Did Jesus really say? Yeah. Yeah, he did, right? Jesus is not deconstructing his faith, right? Very popular concept in our, in our world and culture today. He was not deconstructing the faith that was handed down. Okay, so kai ton monan despotain. Despotes, right? This word, it's where we get despot in English, right? Uh, it means master or sovereign lord according to Mounts. I think this is fascinating, if, if you'll bear with me for a second. So Eusebius, again, a, a church historian, uh, is writing of that first century, first generation group of Christians living in Galilee. He says, a few of the careful, however, having obtained private records of their own, either by remembering the names or by getting them in some other way from the registers, pride themselves on preserving the memory of the, their noble extraction. Among these are those already mentioned called desposunoi, on account of their connection with the family of the Savior. Coming from Nazareth and Kochaba, 
villages of Judea into other parts of the world. They drew the aforesaid genealogy from memory and from the book of daily records as faithfully as possible. Right? So we're talking about people who were somehow related to Jesus, biologically related to Mary, right? Actually claimed that this name that's derived from despotes, right? In other words, saying that they belong to Jesus. So it's fascinating here, right? If Eusebius is correct, and we have no reason to believe he isn't, this is very personal for Jude. He would have embraced this identity as one of the desposunoi, right? So to say that you're denying Jesus is a very personal attack. Okay, and then Kai Kurian. Um, <clears throat> looks like I failed to underline this appropriately, so let's take a look uh, instead at um, Arnimanoi, right? He to whom a person or thing belongs, about which he has the power of deciding master or lord. I mean, again, if we go back to that narrative from Genesis chapter 3 where the serpent says to Eve, did God really say? Okay, so these folks are actually contradicting Jesus, right, who is the master, who has the power of deciding. They're saying, I don't care what Jesus said. This is what Jesus must have meant, or this is how I'm going to interpret Jesus um, and then Kurian, right, which is, which is Lord, um, this shows up, it's translated into English in our liturgy, right, when, when Nick says, Lord have mercy, Christ have mercy, Lord have mercy, uh, right, Kyrie eleison, right, Lord. And in the Jewish mind, there was only one Lord, Adonai, and that is the Lord, Yahweh. So Jude is making a very, very strong Christological statement in this one sentence right here. He's saying that they're denying our master, Jesus, who has the right to tell us how to live, but they're also denying God, right? He created us. He has the right to tell us how we are to live. All right, so I, I think it's appropriate at this time, and we're, we're coming to our conclusion. Um, in our contemporary world, Jude is difficult to read, um, people are very concerned about tone in this day and age. And Jude's tone is not one that a lot of people can swallow. <laughs> um, J.N.D. Kelly in his commentary on Peter and Jude says, in a general way, Jude is a more spontaneous and vigorous piece of writing. Well, that's saying something. And also harsher in tone. Both Jude and 2 Peter catalog examples, mostly the same ones from biblical history. But while Jude is careless of their correct chronological order, Second Peter observes it scrupulously. Both appeal to these incidents in order to emphasize God's severity in dealing with sinners, but Second Peter softens the denunciatory tone. Okay? Jude isn't terribly concerned about his tone in the letter. Um, so what do we do with that, with tone? Aren't we supposed to always be nice and say nice things nicely? What does the Bible tell us about what we say to others and the tone that we use? Well, Paul writes to us in Colossians 4, verses 5 and 6, Walk in wisdom toward outsiders, 
Making the best use of the time, let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. What's the key word here? I just underlined it for you. Outsiders. Welcome wisdom towards outsiders. St. Paul does tell us to let our speech toward outsiders always be gracious. However, Jude is not addressing outsiders. Rather, he's speaking to those who belong to the household of faith regarding those who claim to be insiders but are not behaving like children of God. This is why he also says that our speech should be seasoned with salt, which ought to remind us of something that Jesus taught again in the Sermon on the Mount. And if we read that in context, we can see that it follows immediately after Jesus' commendation, blessed are you when others revile and persecute you on his account. For your reward is great in heaven. And immediately before, calling, uh, before him calling us the light of the world. So when he says that we are salty, it's not that we're being salty, right, to people. What, what he means is that we're righteous and the world hates righteousness hates righteous people. Jesus knows that it is so tempting for us to take the righteousness of his word and tone it down just a little to make it a bit more palatable. Right? Too much salt on your dinner is going to make you want to spit it out. But he challenges us, don't do it. Don't water down the truth that he's revealed to us. Don't lose your saltiness. Don't hide your lamp under a basket. Okay, despite popular opinion, the Bible does not tell us to be nice. It tells us to be kind, and there's a difference. Kindness means telling people the truth when their life choices have them hurtling towards relational, financial, or spiritual ruin, even if they don't want to hear it. If you're not willing to tell people the truth when they're hurtling towards ruin, you know what that is? That's toxic empathy. That's not kindness. Okay, however, I would also call to mind Jesus' encouragement to be innocent as doves and wise as serpents. I think we've all met someone in our lives who loved to play the Christian shock jock and then falsely comfort themselves with Jesus' promise. Blessed are you when others revile and persecute you. The problem is that other people reviled and hated them on account of their coarseness and not on account of Jesus. Don't be like that. Don't go looking for extra ways to make the gospel offensive to unbelievers. The gospel is already offensive enough by itself. And it should be the only stumbling block for the Holy Spirit to overcome in drawing sinners to himself. Oftentimes, harsh harsh speech can be the result of a hard or arrogant heart. This is why St. Paul instructs Titus to urge younger Christian men to be self-controlled in their speech. Titus 2, 6 through 8. Likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works. And in your teaching, show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned, so that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. Just a, a last thought here. If you have kids in the nursery, feel free to go and grab them. I apologize. I'm just a few minutes over here. Now let's go back. Aristotle... 4th century B.C., pretty confident that Jude knew about him. He's using Greek rhetoric pretty heavily here. 
Aristotle famously divided the means of persuasion and rhetoric into three distinct categories. Logos, right, or a logical appeal. Ethos, right, or ethos. Credibility, an ethical appeal. Pathos, emotional appeal. So logos, the root from which we derive logic, entails persuasion by the use of reason. The Western tradition has traditionally tended to favor this approach. Giving reasons is the heart of argumentation, and it can't be emphasized enough. Ethos entails convincing by character of the one speaking or writing. Okay, Don't be a hypocrite. Right? You can't tell people not to be sexually immoral if you're going around being sexually immoral. Right? So ethos. We tend to believe people whom we respect. One of the central problems of argumentation is to project an impression to the reader that you are someone who's worth listening to. In other words, making yourself a speaker, an author, into an authority on the subject of your paper or speech, as well as someone who is likable, worthy of respect. Pathos entails persuading by appeal to the reader's emotions. We can look at texts ranging from classic essays to contemporary advertisements to see how emotional appeals are used to persuade. Language choice affects the audience's emotional response, and emotional appeal can effectively be used to enhance an argument. Now, in contemporary discourse, it seems that many gladly resort to an appeal from pathos alone, and sadly, they get away with it. Like Aristotle, I would argue that the best and most persuading arguments make good and equal use of all three, logos, ethos, and pathos. And I would further argue that mature and intelligent Christians ought to make every effort to do this as well. Still, when we hear others making clumsy arguments, that is not an excuse to ignore what they have to say. This is my little soapbox moment here. Wise people know that the unhelpful ethos and pathos of those with whom they disagree does not negate the logos of their message. Just because they have bad character doesn't mean that we disregard them, right? Just because they're not making a very good emotional appeal to us doesn't mean that we can ignore them. We still have to look for the truth, right? Whatever that may be behind those, we have to humble ourselves to listen for the truth, Tone policing, really big today, that is shutting down others from speaking because we don't appreciate their tone. More often than not, this is just a covert, though often effective way of deflecting hard challenges and hard feedback. Mature Christians, don't do that. Okay? So, tone. Jude has a pretty harsh tone. Doesn't mean that we ignore what he's telling us. So... A question that's being asked here, what rhetorical function does the invective or pejorative language serve? What's to warn the audience to change their behavior and stop associating with and being hospitable to those who have crept in? It's sufficient to say that we can see Jude as a deliberative discourse with the polemical volume turned up in places from start to finish. That's Ben Witherington again in his commentary. So next week, what do we want to do? Uh, I want you to start reading and marking your observations about Jude's three illustrations in verses 5 through 7. So he references the rebellion that occurred after the Exodus, the heavenly rebellion and fallen angels, and Sodom and Gomorrah. 
So spend a little bit of time making observations. I've got another fun little video for you here about observations in closing. All right. Well, thank you, everybody, and I will see you next week.